Cindy and I chatted a little bit after that because, of course, many of you know uh, my daughter Clementine, she's six, and she was rushed into emergency brain surgery in January, and um, she just kind of had like some flu-like symptoms in the classroom, and then an hour and a half later, she's in surgery, and it was a wild, crazy time for me as we're trying to frantically make phone calls, put um, put our life on hold and not knowing what's going to happen. And there's almost these moments where um, I'm a pastor and sometimes I get afraid to pray because I'm afraid to ask God for a miracle. What if something doesn't happen? How will I feel then? And being kind of mixed in those emotions and not knowing how to pray and not knowing what to say, I think what what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and petition to God on your behalf when you don't have the words. And I felt like God was doing that in that moment for me, and it was this calm that Cindy was talking about. There was never a moment that we thought we were going to lose Clementine, even though it was certainly a possibility. Um, There was never a moment that we thought we were gonna lose her. We didn't know what our future would be like, but we had that calm, we had that warmth that Cindy was sharing about there. I don't know if you've had moments like that where there's a calming or there's a moment where you feel at peace and things are going to be okay. I don't know if you've had those moments. It's okay if you haven't had those moments. Sometimes God speaks to us in quieter tones and and maybe we haven't had some of those big exaggerated moments where we need a big moment of feeling But God speaks to us, and I I believe that we all have faith stories, and we all have ways that God has interacted with us and spoken to us, and that we, if we don't talk about them, if we don't share our stories, if we don't talk about how we interact with God, I think sometimes we forget about it. I I think sometimes we forget how it goes, which is why for the ancient Israelites and the early Christians, Scripture became so important. These are our stories of experiencing God. If we don't write them down, if we don't talk about them, if we don't pass them on, we will forget. And if we forget our faith stories, we're liable to lose our faith. We're liable to Let go of these moments with God. So, as we've been sharing stories in the congregation, we're also sharing stories in Scripture of when God connected with people. Last week, Jesus connected with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews. He was high up in the Jewish council. He was a temple Pharisee in the big city. And he met with Jesus, and and as their conversation unfolded, Jesus finally got down to brass tacks and said, this is what it's about. God loves the world so much that God has sent me in the world that whoever believes in me won't perish, will have eternal life. I've come into this world not not to condemn this world, but to save this world. Jesus then continues that conversation and he introduces this theme, this topic of light. In John 3, 20, he goes on to say, all who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed by the light. 
this light theme comes up in John. In fact, it starts at the beginning of John. In John 1, 9, it says that the word was light and life for all people. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. For John, there's this image that Jesus is light. Light is a good thing, right? Without light, we can't see our way. There's confusion without light. Without light, there's fear. Light keeps us safe. It calms us down. It guides us. But light also exposes. It exposes wrongful actions and evil deeds. Light exposes when things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And so when Jesus comes into this world as light, it's a two-edged sword. For some who need light, who feel confused and scared, it can be a source of hope and joy. For those who like the darkness, who like to hide, who like to get away with things, you don't want to have anything to do with light. After the story of Nicodemus, Jesus goes into the next country over, Samaria, and he meets another woman. He meets a woman at the well. Now, the woman at the well is about as different from Nicodemus and Nathaniel as a person could possibly be, all right? In the first two cases that we've been looking at, Nathaniel is a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a wild preacher who is preaching against the city, against the temple, who is basically saying, look, everyone, if you want to be close with God, you don't have to dress a certain way, you don't have to go to a certain building, you don't have to do all the rituals, all you have to do is turn to God with with all your heart, earnestly turn away from your evil actions. You can get baptized in this dirty river. We'll do it right now. And John the Baptist gained a following of people who are fed up with religion, who are fed up with rituals, who just wanted to connect with God. Nathaniel was one of John the Baptist's disciples, and these are Jesus's people. The first thing Jesus does is he goes to John the Baptist and he gets, he affirms his ministry. And then many of Jesus' disciples came from John the Baptist. Nathaniel and Jesus, they're both from, you know, backwater towns in Galilee, small, poor communities. They knew each other, and there was an instant, there's an easy connection between Nathaniel and Jesus. Nicodemus is just about as different from Nathaniel as it can be. Nicodemus was a temple Pharisee, was a city Jew, and yet Jesus still goes to him, still connects with him, says, what do you need? I'll talk with you also. And we thought Nathaniel and Nicodemus were far apart. Now we're introduced into this next conversation that Jesus has. Uh, this woman at the well, at least Nicodemus and Nathaniel, they were both Jewish, right? They both were from Israel, they both had names that started with N, right? They had, they had some things in common. This woman, we don't even get her name. She's from Samaria. She's from what used to be the northern part of Israel. And when Israel was attacked on all sides from Syria and Assyria and Babylon, um, the, the northern tribes of Israel, the ten tribes that made up the northern country, they gave up and they gave in. And they intermarried with all of their attackers and their oppressors. They decided if you can't beat them, join them. 
the southern Israel, Judea, Judah, they were taken into exile, and they tried to remain faithful, remain pure to God. And so when they came out of exile, they looked at their, their cousins to the north, and they said, you filthy people, when we were being oppressed and exiled, you decided to join them. You intermarried with them. You're no longer fit to be our family. You're no longer fit to be us. And they called them Samaritans in that land of Samaria. And there was hatred and divide between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. So much to the point where laws made it so that they could not speak to one another. What was Jesus doing walking through that country? What was Jesus doing going to Samaria at all? I think this tells me that above and beyond what Nicodemus and that story was all about is that Jesus' welcome is absolutely unconditional. It doesn't matter who you are, male, female, none of the above, all the above, gay, straight, black, white, whatever, rich, poor, city, country, you are welcome. Jesus invites you and speaks to you. It doesn't matter who you are. So Jesus goes into Samaria. His disciples go to get lunch. He comes across a well, which I know I've said this a bunch of times, but it's just true. The well in the Bible is the hookup spot in the Bible, right? It's where couples get together. It's where romances started. Jacob meets his wife, Rachel, at a well. Isaac meets his wife, Rebecca, at a well. Moses meets his wife, Zipporah, at a well. And now Jesus comes to a well, and he sees a woman. And the biblical pickup line is always, hey, baby, will you draw me some water, right? So Jesus goes up to this woman, and I don't know if he says, hey, baby, but he does say to her, hey, would you draw me some water? Now, if you were, uh, if you were born Jewish and you had memorized the Old Testament and you're reading this story for the first time, you're thinking, whoa, what's Jesus doing? And Jesus is, you know, having a romantic proposition with this woman? What is going on? And in the story, she's thinking the same thing. She's thinking, what's this guy want from me? We can't do this. So her response, and I love it. I love this woman. I love that she doesn't shy away from the conversation. I love that she pushes back. She's always pushing back, always questioning, always talking to Jesus. She says, oh, whoa, 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 buddy. Slow, hold your horses here. You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. We don't get together. We're not allowed to talk to each other. What are you doing talking to me? How is it that you're asking me for a glass of water? And Jesus kind of comes back, and there's like a little bit of a banter starting. And Jesus says, well, if you knew who I was, then you'd be asking me for a drink of water. She's like, okay, all right, I'm feeling you a little bit. She starts to flirt back a little bit. She's like, oh, really? You're going to give me some water? Well, where's your bucket? This well is deep, and uh, you don't have a bucket. And then he says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would be asking me for water, and the water that I give is not some 
regular water that you drink once and you'll get thirsty again later. The water I give, the water I give is eternal living water. And when you drink it, those who drink it will never be thirsty again. It becomes unending, self-replenishing water in your heart and in your soul. This is the kind of water that I give. Do you see the playfulness that's kind of happening in this conversation? Jesus is addressing this woman at the well. She bites. She's all for it. She's like, okay, I'm in. Let's have some of this water. Sir, give me some of this water. And Jesus goes, okay, why don't you go get your husband? And she lies and says to him, well, (laughs) I don't have a husband. She doesn't actually lie. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, that's right, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now is also not your husband. And you hear like the record scratch in the story, right? Ooh, scary moment. What? I thought we were having a romantic comedy. What is the story now? And the story comes to a screeching halt. See, Jesus is the light of the world, and Jesus, where Jesus goes, he sheds light. And so Jesus sheds light on the woman at the well. She said, she, he said, sheds light on her wrongful actions. And what she does next, I think, is beautiful and is wonderful. She doesn't do what my kids always do, right? Whenever Joanna and I are in one room of the house and the kids are in another room of the house and there's always some like maybe a crash or a bang and then there's crying from both kids, Joanna and I come around the corner and we are there, we are the parents, we are shedding light on on things and exposing wrongful actions and they start to point fingers at each other. They start blaming each other immediately, right out of the gate. Clementine did it, Lewis did it, like What are you guys talking about? We just want to know if you guys are safe. They know that they've done something wrong. Sometimes when I come up to them and like, what happened? What happened? Well, Lewis kicked me in the stomach. And uh, Lewis, what happened? And immediately, it was an accident. What? Kicking your sister in the stomach? It was an accident? Buddy. Because I think sometimes our kids get this idea that, oh, if it's an accident, then I don't get punished as harshly, right? If it's an accident, it's not that bad. All of a sudden, absolutely everything is an accident. The woman at the well, she could have used these excuses, right? She she was a woman in a patriarchal society. She could have said, these five divorces, they're not my doing. It's all them. It's all the guy's fault. It's all what they have done to me. She could have done that. She could have used the accident excuse, Five marriages, they were all accidents. I didn't mean to do it, right? Maybe not. But she doesn't do any of that, right? The woman at the well, she doesn't blame others. She doesn't make excuses. She could have left. She didn't leave. Instead, she decides to lean into the light. When the light was shed on her wrongful actions, she decided to lean into it, to not say, I, I, this is not my fault, I didn't do it, but instead stays in the light. Okay, okay, you see me. I see that you see me. I love how Jesus sheds light in her life. And Jesus does not find a woman who is a sinner 
walks up to her and says, hey, you, what are you doing with your life? You've been married five times. Now you're sleeping with somebody who isn't your husband. Pull it together. Get it right or you're not going to see the kingdom of God. That's not the way Jesus sheds light. That's not the way Jesus does it. Instead, Jesus meets her over something common like water, engages in a conversation. Jesus is kind, but when there is an opportunity, he definitely says, you're right, and I know what you've been up to. I know what you've been up to. Jesus is fulfilling what he said in, uh, to Nicodemus, that the light of the world is coming, and it's exposing wrongful actions. But at the same time, Jesus said, he did not come in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. See how Jesus is shedding light without condemning. It's beautiful. It's interesting. What the woman at the well does is leans into it. She says, oh, wow. You are somebody special. I thought I was having a different conversation, but now we're having this conversation. And while you're shedding light in my life, I have some questions. I have some questions about God. I have some questions about the universe. I have some questions about the way things work. She decides to stay in the light and ask those questions. She says, your people, the Jewish people, you know, we've been divided for hundreds and hundreds of years. You guys say this is the place where you can connect with God, the temple in Jerusalem. This is the place where we make this movement with God, this moment with God. Of course, we're not allowed in the temple, and so we say, no, the temple is void of God's spirit. We say, no, the temple's not the place where you connect with God. We say, Mount Gerizim, this is the place where we worship God. So you tell me, where is God? Where is God? How do we worship God? How do we give God a right worship? And Jesus speaks into this moment. I think a lot of times we think about this. How do we make a right worship with God? How do we do this right? What are the right words? What are the right songs? What is the right location? And Jesus says it's not about any of that. It's not about where you come from. It's not about your people. It's not about how you worship God, what building you're in, what songs you sing. None of that matters. But there is coming a time when people who truly connect with God, truly worship God, worship God in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? I think sometimes we think worshiping God in spirit means worshiping, worshiping God exuberantly, exuberantly, I think that's a word. Um, worshiping, worshiping God with all of our oomph, right? Singing loud, clapping loud, swinging from chandeliers, those kinds of things, right? This is what it means to truly worship God with all of your spirit. I don't think that that's what he's saying. In just the chapter earlier, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you can't be part of the kingdom of God unless you are born in the spirit. Unless by God's grace, God moves in you and gives you new life. So when Jesus here says, true worship is worship in spirit, I don't think he means your spirit. I think he means God's spirit. I think when we worship, when we come to God, it's by connecting with God's spirit. That might happen with you in a very loud and joyful, hand-clapping way. 
but it also might happen in a quiet, still way. Worshiping God is not about the form. It is not about your body position. It is not about the clothes you wear. It is about connecting to the Spirit of God, saying, God, I need you. Here I am. Fill me. Move in me. Use me now. We need these moments to get out of our world to be breathed in by God, to connect with God. We call that worship. There's coming a time when we won't talk about worshiping in a temple or in a mountain, where we won't talk about hymns or choruses, where we won't talk about singing out a book or looking at screens. There's coming a time when we worship in spirit, opening our hearts to God's spirit. I think it's easy to do that when we're in a worship setting like this. I think it's easy to do that when we practice and when we are in worship on a regular basis. I think it's easy, but I think you don't have to do it here alone. It can happen anywhere. She's got another question for him. Your people also say that God is going to transform the world and make things right, and that God is going to send a servant to get this new world order started. You guys call him the Messiah. Tell me, what is this Messiah? Is it true? Is it right? Is it good? That is the moment when Jesus says, you're talking to him. It is happening right now. You can be a part of it. You can be a part of this new world. I'm the one that you speak with. Now, I think this is the right model for talking to people about God. I think this is the right model for sharing your faith. Jesus meets a stranger over something common, something regular, water. Jesus is friendly. Jesus is kind. And, you know, through that friendship, through that relationship, some stuff gets exposed. And when she starts asking about God, does Jesus respond? Jesus hasn't talked about God at all, but he's opened a door for a friend, a new person, to ask him questions about God. And that's when he responds. That's when he acts until the point where he gets up to questions about the Messiah, at which point he offers himself to her. I think this is the way we should share our faith. This is the way we need to talk to people about our faith. We don't go, I mean, I have to talk with strangers uh, about my faith sometimes because sometimes I wear a collar. Um, I wear a collar usually when I'm doing a service for someone I don't know um, or when I need to go into the hospital. I need, I need doors to open for me or when I'm flying and I'm trying to get bumped into first class. Those are the only three times that I wear a collar. And so, so it's never worked. It's never worked. But it's worked for a friend before, so I keep trying. Um, so sometimes I have to talk to strangers about faith. Um, and that's okay. You know, I, I practice up on that, and that's part of what I do. But that's not the way it happens in general, and I don't think that's the way it should happen commonly for people. I think we should connect with our neighbors and our friends over regular things. Food, right? Water the weather, schools. And then we build those relationships until deeper questions come out, deeper questions about the universe, deeper questions about God, until more pointed questions come out. What do you do to practice your faith? Who is Jesus? It happens slowly and it happens over time. For Jesus, it happened in one sitting. 
for me and my best friend, it happened over six years. It takes time. But if we build those relationships and have those conversations, God creates openings for people to share and to talk about faith. This is the way I think it happens. In response, the woman cannot keep herself from sharing her story. The scripture continues and it says that um, uh, the woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to her people, the people of her city, her neighbors, people that already knew her, her friends, come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? She can't help herself. She shares. Her town goes out and sees Jesus. They come back and report to her. We, we don't need to believe anymore because of your testimony, but we believe because we've experienced him ourselves. This Samaritan woman, a woman from a hated people, a woman with baggage and a past, a woman that couldn't hold any religious or leadership titles, she becomes the first evangelist in the Gospel of John for the message of Jesus. It's incredible. Jesus moved her, connected with her. What are some of our uh, next steps? What do we do from hearing this? I think the first thing I want to talk about is leaning into the light. When something is exposed in your life, what's your knee-jerk reaction? I didn't do that. I didn't mean to do that. Somebody else did that. Or, I'm not wrong. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I think God is calling us to have hearts that welcome correction and light. That when somebody comes and says, hey, you're, I think this is not the way things should go, rather than get defensive or upset, be open to correction. Be open to saying, I don't know if I'm right on this. I don't know if, if, uh, if this is the right way to go. Now, I have beliefs. I have strong opinions and stances. I'll, I'll defend them, but I'm also open to being corrected because how can that be a bad thing? How can that be a bad thing? If I'm wrong, I want to know. So in our lives and in our hearts, are we open to correction? Are we open to learning? Let God kind of place that humility in you. And secondly, we got to share our stories. We got to talk about faith. This is difficult. I get it. I understand it. In our society, um, talking about religion and politics and polite company is not the way to go, right? But if we never put our faith stories to words, we're in danger of forgetting. Forgetting those moments when we were kids and we felt God's, God's touch, God's, God's spirit in a Sunday school teacher, you know. We're in danger of forgetting those moments as we were growing up, those moments when we were teenagers, like Cindy said, where we were overcome with warmth and peace. We can be in danger of forgetting our stories. The ancient Christians and ancient Israelites knew how important the stories were, so they preserved them. So I want you to think about your stories. I want, to think you, I want you to think about your moments. I want you to tell someone 
maybe a friend uh, or a relative or uh, somebody in your house. Those are the easy ways to go. If you're still a little nervous, like make them go first, you know, and <laughs> ask them about their faith. Ask them about their moments. If this is still too much, I encourage you to write it down. Put it in a journal. Write it down so that you don't forget your story. We've had several people share stories through the videos, um, and all of them have been one take, which I'm pretty amazed by. And if, if you want to share your story with the congregation, I would love that. I need a couple more people to do that as well. Um, so think about, how will you share your story? Get a hold of me if you want to share your story in the service as well. Jesus comes and he sheds light on people. He sheds light. When he sheds light on you, I encourage you to stay in that light. Think about your story. Think about your moments and tell it to someone.